read from God's Word, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, I'll be reading verses 1 through 8, but I will emphasize in particular verses 1 and 5 as it relates to the new heaven and new earth. Revelation, chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, I'll read to verse 8 here as I read God's Word. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them. And be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone." which is the second death. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you this morning, and our desire is that you might give us true, spirit-wrought understanding of your word, and that it would be for us as those to whom you have given your spirit a means by which righteousness grows that you would bring light in the dark places that where there is confusion, that you would over time give understanding. Where there is unbelief, Lord, would you bring repentance and faith, that you would do that work that you have promised to do through the preaching of your word unto the building of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. These things we pray in your name. Amen. I've heard it said many times, Uh, that as we have moved through the book of Revelation, there are many things that were said from the pulpit. I don't get it. And I will say to you this. You're in good company. Uh, As I have endeavored to study and have read commentaries, as I have sought understanding not only from the book of Revelation, but gone to those sections, especially in the Old Testament, of which many of us are functionally illiterate, We must open the words of the whole of Scripture if we are to understand any one particular part of it. Let us be patient to move through the things of Scripture that are at times of great mystery and not fret that because of one sermon series, you have yet not come to a complete and full understanding of what the Bible says. I will say it this way. 
In the 11 years of ministry, of preaching, well, really more than that, now going on more closer to 13, of preaching and studying and seeking to understand the Word of God, I will admit this, I am but a babe. I am just, I feel like every Sunday I'm at the cusp of getting it. And then all of a sudden it seems to, to elude me as to a full understanding of, of what God says in his word. One of my seminary professors, uh, Reverend Doug Kelly, said that uh, what took him 20 hours at the beginning of his ministry in terms of sermon preparation began to take him an hour and a half. And I remember when we first heard that, we went, never. How will that ever happen? Because what God does through the regular preaching and hearing of and reading of the word of God is give us a fuller understanding, a, a greater repository of knowledge. And it comes by the preaching and the reading and the teaching of God's word. I want you to be patient and I want you to be patient this morning, not just because these things are rich, but because as I was preparing to preach these eight verses, I came to the conclusion that it's really only good to focus on one, maybe two. And I'm going to do it in a way that I don't often do it in terms of structure. I have one main point and I have five subpoints. The first main or only main point in fact, you probably have the script by now that I say every Sunday morning and evening. I have two headings, three headings. Let's now turn to the first. I'm, I'm throwing you off a little bit. The first and only main point, the new heavens and new earth. And then these are the five subpoints. What kind of newness? When is the new heavens and new earth? A covenant with men and the cosmos? The resurrection and redemption of what belongs to Christ? And then lastly, exercising the keys of the kingdom. Now, I will review those. Don't worry. If you like to take notes, it shouldn't be too hard. I have a lot of notes. Let's look at this first subheading, what kind of newness. Now, in verses 1 and verses 5, there are two words that I think are important to focus on. One is make or making. The other is new or renewed. This word for newness that we find in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 14, chapter 21, verses 1, 2, and 5, is the word kainos. That's a fancy, it's actually not a fancy Greek word, it's just fancy for us because we don't speak Greek or read Greek. It means renewal. It is not the making of something wholly other, which is the word Naos, or reborn. That word naos is the Greek word that encapsulates the sense of replacement. One thing for a completely new thing. There may be similarities between the two, but one is wholly new. In fact, we find it in Hebrews chapter 12. A new covenant, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 24, if one that completely replaces the old one. God has taken the new covenant the covenant of grace, and he has made it, this covenant new where there once there was the covenant of works. That is not the word being here. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, we see that word naos again, that you may be a new lump. 
That is not the yeast of the Pharisees, the sin that works in our hearts, but rather the yeast or the leaven of the Holy Spirit. We are new creations. And so there is some discussion about what the new heavens and the new earth are like, what they will look like. It must be said first that it is not something wholly other. When God causes the first heaven and the first earth to pass away, he is not throwing it in the waste bin. He is purging, cleansing it of all its wickedness, its futility, and whatever effect of the fall that was brought by Adam and his wife. In fact, if you want good notes in your Bible, get a Geneva Bible, the old Geneva Bible. It was a Bible that was translated 51 years before the King James. And the notes are extraordinary. And they are extraordinary for this reason. They're kind of post-mill. I'm just going to throw that out there for those of you to whom that may appeal. As it relates to Acts 3, chapter 21, this is the note that we find. All things shall be renewed and restored into a most excellent and perfect estate. And therefore, the day of resurrection is called the day of restoration of all things. Now, as it relates to not just this idea of renewal, it also follows that the word here, poieo, to make, is not the making of something from nothing, but rather the formation or renewal of something that is already existing. Now, you may be going, get to the point, and I'm saying, I'm getting there. Believe me, as I'm reading commentaries, I'm saying, just tell me what to say in the pulpit. Please help me. But this making is like what the potter does to the clay. He takes something that is in need of being formed or reformed and makes something new of that material. And so the new heavens and the new earth are not wholly new in origin or makeup but they are wholly, completely sanctified or glorified in relationship to once what, what once was. And so if you take the word kainos and the word poieo, we see a glorifying, a complete remodeling of the heavens and earth. And this is something that Christ will do in completion in the future. But that is not all that can be said about the new heavens and the new earth. It is a remodeling, a renewal, a refreshment of the heavens and earth that we have today. Even as we will one day be glorified in the self-same bodies that we possess today. In the self-same body that Christ was raised and he visited with the disciples. He ate fish. He fellowshiped with them. It was a body that still bore scars why were those scars not wholly glorified? Because those scars are the ultimate expression of obedience to the will of God. Is there and has there ever been a greater and more glorious righteous act than the death of Christ upon the cross? What is there? In fact, the scars that bear, that Christ bears, even in his physical glorified body now, are evidence of Christ's covenant faithfulness to his people. And so when you doubt your salvation, when you doubt the sufficiency of what Christ has given to the church to build the kingdom that cannot be shaken, 
What are we to remember? What does Christ show Thomas when he doubts the glory of the resurrection? He says, Thomas, put your hands in my hands. Put your hands in my side. Why? So that we may not doubt that Christ is making all things new. It is the glorifying of that which once was. And so all that is old, all that is old will not be destroyed. But rather that which is wicked and unredeemed are described as those things which fly away or pass away in chapter 20 and 21. And so let's begin a working definition then of the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth are the perfected reality of the material and immaterial, of the physical and the spiritual, in which there is no impurity of sin, but all only righteousness, holiness, that which is built for the glory and honor of Christ. This is the kind of newness that the new heavens and the new, thought, new earth are. It is not something wholly other, but it is the purification of that which is now. Now, when does the new heavens, when is it? Is it holy future? And I have a very simple answer to that question. No. The full or final or here in your notes, the consummated realization of the new heavens and new earth follow the judgment of what we read of in Revelation 20. Now, there's some chronology here between Revelation 19, 20, and 21. After the judgment of all men comes the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. When all sin will be dealt with, but Revelation 21 is not the only place of which we read of the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, do you know where, you Bible scholars? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, we read of the new creation, of the new heavens and the new earth. And this is what we begin to read in verse 17. And I will read to verse 23. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. Now look at this language. For the child shall die 100 years old. So there's death in the new heavens and the new earth. Years old, or but the sinner being 100 years old, shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall enjoy Long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. Children will be born in the new heavens and the new earth. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. Isaiah is talking about things that pertain to the new heavens and the new earth that cannot possibly take place in the consummated era of the new heavens and the new earth. So this is where I'm... I wish I had. I don't think, hey, I don't think there should be a projector here. But this is when I wish I had one of those 
the old school R.C. Sproul chalkboards or the whiteboards. If you're looking at a timeline, I want you to think of the new heavens and the new earth as consisting of two fundamental extraordinary phases. Two. The first is the inauguration. That means the beginning. The beginning of the new heavens and the new earth in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And especially at the period of time in AD 70 where Christ comes in judgment against Jerusalem and he destroys Jerusalem, which is why Isaiah in 65, speaking on behalf of the Lord, when he speaks of Jerusalem, does not talk about the one place, the one city, for it cannot be, for it is destroyed. He is speaking of the people of God and the restoration of the church. That's when it begins. And it will gradually continue until the new heavens and the new earth are consummated, fully realized at a later future date for us as well. That is what John writes of in Revelation 21. So, here is the word I want you to think of. Gradualism. The gradual expansion of the new creation of all things that Christ has kicked off in his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascending to the throne, and his destruction of Jerusalem. Such that now, as the Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, what we will see from the inauguration to the consummation is an upward trend. Only ever upward, Isaiah chapter 9, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end, no end of increase. Not only no end of his government and peace, but no end of the increase. So when you think of the speed of gravity, it's spoken of in terms of acceleration until you reach terminal velocity. And you reach that point at about 10 seconds after falling. Do you all know any of this? This is stuff you learn when you used to learn stuff in schools about stuff. Right? These are the things you learn in first grade if you're homeschooled, that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? After 10 seconds, you're falling as fast as you can. Now, things may inhibit that, laws of motion, all those types of things. Of the increase of acceleration, there shall be no end. That is a principle that, that is the gravitational pull falling, speed of falling, does not apply to the work of the kingdom. Not only will the government and peace, that is the felt authority of earth, of Christ's rule and reign, expand, but its acceleration will also continue. Now you may say, and this is the pride of the present living generation, things, things are better now than they ever have been. The humility that we ought to possess is but just wait and see what God will continue to do. So when does it take place? Well, it has already taken place. The inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth has already taken place. But the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth, that is the full getting rid of it all. Parents, I want you to think of it like this. Maybe this is a, a weak illustration. You say to your kids, kids, I want you to vacuum the house 
And they say, okay. And they go through the house. And they're vacuuming and they're vacuuming. And you see, you see that there is something that remains to be done that only mom can really do. There is something that will remain at the end of the age, the age of the history of men on earth, that only Christ can do. And that is what? The destruction of death. Now, in a moment, we will turn there in 1 Corinthians, but for now, I want to quote G.K. Beale. G.K. Beale, G. K. Beale is, a, is a pastor, a theologian, and this is what he says in his commentary on Revelation. As seen in Revelation 3.14, the Isaiah prophecy that stands behind 21 through 22, chapters 21 and 22, he is referring to Isaiah 65 and 66 as having been inaugurated in the death and resurrection of Christ in a more radical way than ever before. It has also been inaugurated throughout the church age as people believe in Christ and become a new creation. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and also in Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. Revelation 21, 1, however, asserts that the inaugurated Isaiah prophecy will be fulfilled consummately at some future time. Things will continue, not only to get better, in terms of Christ's reign on earth, but there will come a time in the future when Christ will return and he will raise us bodily. And so already, things that are true of the consummated age have broken forth into this age. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Christ is even now making all things new. And so what are we to do? We are to live in light of this state of The new heavens and the new earth are now, but not yet fully realized. And the spread of the gospel that results in the filling of the house of God as a fulfillment of the promises made. Expand the the sides of your tent. Go ahead and pull the stakes up. Get ready because the church is going to grow. And it does not always grow in the same ways, in the same places. There are times where the church is railed against and Satan, through his demons, accomplishes victory. But we must know the plot. And the plot is this. We are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And of the increase of his government peace there shall be no end. We live in the inaugurated age. But we look forward to the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. And so it is a both and. John is building upon what has already been said by the prophet Isaiah, namely in those verses I read in chapter 65 that speak of death and the new heavens and the new earth. That is this age. And it will include the abolition of abortion in every facet Because there will come a time where our children need not fear murder. 
And they themselves will live to be a long age. And do you know how Christ will put an end to abortion? It will not be merely in the consummation. It will be through the faithful labors of those who call themselves Christians. We will be victorious. So what does that mean? It does not mean sit back on your chair and watch the news and just say, well, I can't wait till Christ returns. That is unfaithfulness. It means turn off the television and go seek the salvation of the lost. Now, I'm not saying don't ever turn on the television. I mean stop watching it with fatalistic heart, with pessimism in your chest, and say it has been given to the church to wield the keys of the kingdom so that there may be no more of this violence around us. Why is this violence here? Because the church has not borne faithful witness to the law word of God. And demons will do what demons do. They will manifest satanic power on earth until the church brings the light of the gospel and leaves them no place to stand. They need to be banished. And the promise of Christ is this. Where the word goes forth, there can be no darkness. Because the grace of Christ is more powerful than the accusatory deceiving power of the devil. So I would say to you, let's get to work. Let's continue the faithful ministry of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Third subheading, and you may be going, eh, there's a lot here. This is why it's constituted as its own sermon. A covenant with men in the cosmos. What we find being fulfilled in Revelation, especially in this chapter, is the full flowering of all the covenant promises that God has made with the Son to mankind. That flower is somewhere in mid-budding. This is the beauty of spring. It reminds us that the winter is coming to an end. This is the... I don't know if Lewis meant it this way, but when he says Aslan is on the move, this is what he meant. This is how I take it. That Christ and his resurrection has broken the power of the devil and everything that is happening now flows forth supernaturally. It cannot do anything other than the coming of spring. The snow is melting and the winter is passing away. There, was a, there is a famous writer, um, George R.R. R. Martin, who talks about the winter coming. What a desperate and pathetic subversion of the fantasy trope of hope. He turns the whole thing on its head. And that whole thing is winter is coming. But the great hope of the Christian faith is no. Winter is coming to an end. This is what happens when you write from the perspective, not of hope in the resurrection, but no hope whatsoever. This is the atheist. This is the agnostic this is the spirit of the age in which we live, and right now we are feeling the effects of an eschatology without any hope whatsoever. Man does not know their true telos, their order, what they were made for. And now they devote their lives to hard stop choices. Just look at the, 
the revolution of human sexuality in our culture, what has it done? It has embraced not an eschatology of hope, but what? Of misery and death. Why do we get married and have children and baptize those children? Because we believe that what we lay claim to here on earth will go with us into the new heavens and the new earth. Do you not long for that, parents? That the children who sit around your table today that you break bread with will be the exact same people that you break bread with in the new heavens. I long for that. Maybe they'll behave better around the table. I don't know. But we'll be there together. And there will be no more sin, no more crying, no more pain. And this is what Paul means when he writes in 1 Corinthians 15. Chapter, uh, uh, chapter 15, verse 25 and 26. For he, that is Christ, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. How is Christ putting enemies under his feet now? Through the mission and the work of the church. And just because it is the church doing it does not mean that it is not Christ who's getting the glory. This is Christ's church. These are Christ's means. We didn't invent this stuff. And it is powerless without the Spirit. There is no victory. And it doesn't rob Christ of any glory than to say, when we say, well, the church will continue to fail and it's a good thing Christ is coming back because we're going to fail at this thing. That's why, no, Christ will be victorious in the mission and work of the church. And the reason why he is coming when he comes is because there is one enemy that you and I, even through the means of grace, are powerless to prevail against. That is death. That's why you have pictures of old pastors that serve in churches. And that is a blessed reminder of what we are actually hoping for. So maybe in 150 years, I expect you to have a, a very nice portrait of me, the first pastor, this crazy guy. And then all the pastors that come, and we look at the history of the church, and we say, this is Christ's history. He has done it. And it is because he has made a covenant with men and the cosmos. And it is not just men that he will make new. He will make stars new. There will be no more celestial death. You know, we speak of the heavens now in the language of space. What a modern conception of something that the Psalms say, they're not empty and quiet. No, they are loud and they say something. They don't just say something. They sing something. And their song awaits the full manifestation of the glorifying of all creation. In fact, as I was preparing this sermon, I don't normally do this, but I was just sort of thinking, you know, you have these shepherds and they're watching over their flocks by night. Do you think they know the stars? They know the stars. And then one night, there is this star out there, somewhere in the heavens they had never seen before. And it guided them, even with the help of angelic voices, to the place who is the star restorer. A glimpse of the hope of our Redeemer. 
He will make all things new. He will wipe away every sign of death. All of it. It is the resurrection and redemption of what belongs to Christ. That is what the new heavens and the new earth are. Christ's resurrection proclaims it's all mine. As Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one square inch of this world that Christ cannot say that is mine. He is the Lord and King of all of it. Not just in the breadth of it, but in the depth of it. The souls of men, the kings of nations, it all belongs to Christ because you get to keep and you get to rule over the world that you are born again into. Because Christ was dead in this world, he died in this world, and he was subsequently raised in this world, he is made king and governor of heaven and earth. This is his world. And we're just living in it. But he has given it to us as our inheritance. And so, in light of all these things, there is an application. We are to exercise the keys of the kingdom. This is my longest subheading, and it is application. What of us then who sit between the gradual progress of the now and the not yet fully realized? The keys have been given to the saints, namely the church, and the work of continuing what Christ began in his resurrection. That means we get to live, we get to play, we get to fellowship, we get to labor, we get to pray in this world that is ours that Christ says to Noah, I will not destroy it until I have redeemed it. It's ours. And as Joshua said to Israel, the land is yours. Take ownership of it. Take ownership of what? Every soul of every man, woman, and child. That, should be, that is our mission. We look at the harvest. We don't know who's coming, but we look at the harvest and say, that is our missional playground. Let's get to work. Let's learn new languages. Let's translate the scriptures. Let's go to those strange places with strange customs, with things we've never eaten, and let's make sure the gospel brings them in. And not just that. But let's mow our yards. Let's build houses. Let's raise children. Let's perfect cuisine. Let's make beautiful works of art. All for what? So that it might endure. 95% of of stuff in the Tate Modern Museum. Have you been to the Tate Modern Museum of Art in London? It's terrible. And it's all painted as a deconstructionist expression of the godlessness of men, but the Dutch masters, the Dutch masters, there will be so much that we delight in that is not just the work of what we call the spiritual realm. See, we have so made anemic the promises of God by making them apply only to what is spiritual. Someone said to me, all we're doing is living in a tent, waiting for the day of Christ's coming. And I say, sweet, I'm done paying taxes in my mortgage. This is so great. No, we do all of that. I just had to pay my taxes yesterday. It was a a wonderful sort of bringing together my hope in the resurrection and and, in the destruction of the IRS. But (laughs) all of this is going to come about. That's what I should end up getting me in trouble. 
I have paid my taxes. We are seeking to make all of it new. When my wife makes her meatloaf, I taste it and I say, this is good. It is an expression of Christ's lordship over all things. What does Satan feed his prisoners? Not the choice and richest foods of the bounty of God's earth. There is no meal prepared in the dry and desert places, desertous places of those who were lost to the gospel. This is why we fellowship together. I see the tables prepared downstairs in the fellowship hall. That is an act of dominion making, Christendom building, gospel reveling. We eat and drink, not as the humanist says, because tomorrow we may die. We eat and drink because there will never be a time as Christians where we will not feast on the abundance of God's house. That is why we go out into the world and we say, you, dear friend, have no idea what you're missing. Come into the fold. Come taste and see the goodness of God. Taste and see what? Well, taste and see the blessed spiritual promises, but actually taste and see what? The body and blood of Christ, rich food and well-aged wine. And it is through this discipleship, we bring the the nations in, and then we teach them to know and to fear God in all things. And at times, we don't know the plot. But I will tell you who does. Those who understand that their kingdom is coming to an end. Those who are the enemies of God, who understand that their time is coming to an end. My point is this. The problem with the evangelical church in America is they are not nearly as expectant or don't live in the expectation of the last day than the demons do. If demons have a better eschatology than the church, we have failed in our understanding of the scriptures. And this is what they know. It is about worldwide dominion. That is what it is about. But they don't want all knees to bow to Christ. They want what? To deface the glorious image of God in man. Because who spoils the earth? It is the sinner. Who spoils the family? It is the sinner who engages in relationships from which a family may not even flourish. It is the sinner. The sinner who has been given over. So what kind of people then should this make us? I was making a remark a bit tongue-in-cheek. Right now, every church that I've seen in Gaston, or a lot of churches in Gaston County, have something out front that they don't normally have out in front every Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday, and I'm going, yeah, I do it 52 times a year. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And not only that, but I do it twice on Sunday. And it's not because I'm a great Christian. It's because when we come to the sanctuary of God, or we come into the prayer meeting and we plead with God to bring his kingdom, we are showing the world what? Our hope is eternal. And I don't want any more of this stuff that you have to offer. Now, I'm not saying don't celebrate Resurrection Sunday, but since the coming of Christ, 
Churches that celebrate a church calendar have done it about 2,000 times. Christendom has done it 100,000 times. That's 2,000 times 52, not 2,000 times 1. And what is the approaching of the sanctuary of God to worship a little glimpse of? Lord Jesus, come. May your sanctuary fill all the earth. And when the saints of God do not live lives that express their longing to be in the house of God, it reveals what? They do not see that their greatest need is to dwell with God. And yes, I know, as I've already said, there are other things to do that are part of the building of the kingdom of Christ. Those belong to the six. Those things include exercises or um, engagements of worldly employment and entertainment. Right? We do those things on the other six days. But our homes, our chores, our jobs, whatever our responsibilities are, making a living, we set those things aside because what we are saying of those things is these things follow our great hope. And if we want these things to come with us, guess what? We sure do not do them on Sunday, and we do them with an eye of what Sunday says about them. Does that make sense? So when I say, sorry, so I say to my children, if you're going to do the dishes, do it to the glory of God. I say to the whole church, if you're going to labor, do it as God has designed. Seek Christ's coming and prepare yourself for it by being in the sanctuary of God. We live in the new heavens and the new earth. And the more faithful we are to build, to pray, to fellowship, to live according to God's word, guess what Christ will do? He's ready to come back sooner if we'll have him. The question for us is, will we have him? Will we seek his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven? Next week, we'll talk about the city that Christ brings when he comes. Let's pray. Lord our God.